So as we pick it up in chapter 37, verse 1, we read this. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors, a coat, a jacket of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peaceably to him. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I dreamed. There, were, there we were, binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and also stood up, and indeed your sheep stood all around and bowed down to my sheep. His brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream, and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is the dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now we read on, verse 12. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, His father, here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him there and he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he that would be Joseph said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Verse 18. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer's coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, Some wild beasts has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him, and then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water. Verse 25. And then they sat down to eat a meal, and then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, and on their way carrying them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph out, out of the pit and lifted him up and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Verse 29. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and 
brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without a doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all of his sons and all of his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him, that is Joseph in Egypt, to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Well, we read the whole chapter here because it is a narrative that we pretty much need all the narrative to come to our application. This chapter is a little harder just to jump into and hop around. So it's good to just get the whole narrative there out for us, reading it, saying, all right, these are the events in order how they happened. We have the key players. We have Jacob, the father. We have Joseph. We have his brothers. We have Reuben by name. We have the stranger in the field who directs him to uh, Dothan. We have Judah by name. We have the Ishmaelite traders. And we have Joseph ending up at the house of Potiphar in the land of Egypt, uh, one of the you know guys that were officer of Pharaoh's court, captain for Pharaoh. Now, as we think about this story, and I mentioned in the introduction, God's always working on so much more than we ever think in general in his universe and personally in our lives. For all that we think we know that God is doing in our life, he's always doing so much more. And it's amazing certain days he'll connect dots for you. You just go, oh my goodness, God, you are so personal and you are over my life and you know the hairs on my head and you really care and all these different pieces that might be your life, in one day, occasionally, he'll put them all together, and you go, wow, God of the universe, Lord Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, is so personal, and he himself said he knows the hairs on our head. For his people, for his children, as many as receive him, the ones he calls his children, but of course, he's personal in other people's lives too. We see him raise up kings who give favorable decrees to send the Jews back to the promised land. We see him do things like Pilate, condemns Jesus, and Jesus said, you could do nothing unless my father allowed it. It's all good. Like, God, there's so, it's a, the human, human history and human events is just this giant panoramic mosaic of God doing so much more than we can even imagine. And that's why Isaiah the prophet said that as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts and ways above ours. Just in the whole experience for us right now on this planet, sharing it. But then for our lives personally. And when we look at the life of Joseph and the events of Joseph's life, it really is a great encouragement to all of us. As we study his life, we just want to be able to sit back in awe and amazement and just say, man, the Lord is so good, and it's such a bigger picture. Now, from this chapter, we know at the end of his life, after his father is deceased, after they've already buried him back in the promised land, his brothers think he's going to get back at them after their father dies. And he said, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about the saving of many. That's the perspective Joseph had on all these events by that time in his life. Now, we don't know what his perspective was, you know, riding on a camel of Midianite traders headed for Egypt. But we know at that time in his life, later on, his perspective as he looked at the panoramic of his life is that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good for the saving of many. It really is an Old Testament version of what we read in Romans, that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose and who are being conformed to the express image of his son. It's the same principle. 
Now, in Joseph's case, he has a call to greatness. We need to understand this about Joseph. Joseph would become essentially the most powerful person on the planet. Egypt was a mighty empire, if not the strongest kingdom on earth at that time, one of the mightiest kingdoms on earth. He would ascend to be the number two man with the signet ring of the king, Pharaoh, to make decrees and laws and put things in action. His business plan, his business model was so brilliant, not only did it save his own people, the Jews, because, of course, Jacob and the family came to find food during the seven-year famine. He saved the people where he dwelt and worked for, the Egyptians. He saved them as well, and they were grateful to give their property to the king because they were so happy to have food. And he saved people from other lands who came there for food. His business model and his understanding of human workings is unparalleled and similar to someone like Solomon in that sense of the ability to manage, to govern, foresight, decision-making, saving of, of not just himself, but his family, the nation that would become his family, the Jews, the nations with, and other people. He had a great calling. He's going all the way to top. Because really, even though Joseph ascended to the two spot, he really, he was running the company. He ran the flocks for his dad. We saw that in the chapter here. He was the, he was the administrator for the flocks at 17. He ran, he's going to run Potiphar's household, administrate it. He's going to administrate the prison, and then he's going to administrate this greatest kingdom on earth. He was headed for greatness. That's my point. And to be entrusted with so much greatness, he had to be prepared for it. There was a calling, a great calling on his life. Even as we think tonight, there's a great calling on all of our lives. Every one of our lives, we have a great calling. We talk about the call of God in our lives all the time. And we're at different junctures in our timeline. We're all moving toward eternity. Only the Lord can look down right now and know exactly how, much, how many days each of us has before we step into eternity. We can guess based upon our ages what our timeline might, might be. But he's not done. And we always want our greatest moment with the Lord to be in front of us, not behind us. So when we come to this text tonight, I'd like to think of us as we look at Joseph and go forward in this text. And having read this background, that the principles that we can learn from him, it, particularly in this chapter, should encourage us to be stirred for greater things with the Lord in our lives, personally, within our homes, with the people we love and live with, and within this church. That there's greater things to come. There's greatness right around the corner with Jesus. As I was sharing with my sister the other day, I said, I, I'm just, I want to believe God for just great things incredible things and better things than we've ever seen in human history. And if he doesn't choose to do it, that's his choice because he's sovereign and this is universe. But I don't want to limit what he can do because of my unbelief. So if he wants to heal with a handkerchief like he did with Paul the Apostle, then good, bring me a healing handkerchief. If he wants to throw holy water on people and raise them from the dead, then good, bring me some of that holy water and let's raise people from the dead. I want to believe God for the greatest things ever, according to his character, his word, his promises, and the future of humanity and this planet until the day of Christ Jesus, and so should you. And why wouldn't we? But 
to get to the place of greatness, however we would define that with the Lord, there's a, there's a journey. There are three key flashpoints in this chapter that jump out at us because this is the beginning of a big, 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 big thing. In fact, you might say the bigger the dream, the deeper the pit because that's how it works with God. To whom much is given, much is required. It's been said that those people that soar at the greatest heights of the, in the human experience with the Lord, they often descend to the deepest valleys as well. And we see that in the making of this person, this man of God, Joseph. We see his tunic, his coat. We see his dream, and we see his pit. There are three key factors in this chapter moving toward greatness in this man's life, this teenager's life. His coat, his dream, and the pit. These are flashpoints. These are critical flashpoints that tell us so much about this person and what it means in our lives. First of all, the coat. The coat is a coat of distinction. Jacob did have favorites, and it's it's very natural to have favorites in the human experience. If you're a boss and you manage a Starbucks like Kaylee, Alex's wife, and you've got a, six assistant managers, and one of them always shows up early, does the job, doesn't give sass, does a great job, doesn't go home till it's all put in order, and they, they cause you the least problems and they do the most work and they benefit the company, and you've got other assistant managers that show up late, are always complaining, and don't have good people skills, but they're still an assistant manager, you're naturally going to gravitate toward the one that is better than the other. It's a natural thing, especially if you're the owner of the Starbucks or whatever, or a business in that situation. I remind us whenever these things come up, God does make distinctions. It's not one shoe fits everybody in God's kingdom. In the parable of the minus, he gives one, 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 two, and one, five. It's for him to decide. When he dispersed carts amongst the Levites, he gave subdivisions to the Levites, some more carts than others, based upon their needs. So you can't just say, because you're a, a Kohathite, well, why don't we get a cart? Why do we have to carry everything around and they get a cart? Listen, God knows what he's doing. Be thankful you get to carry around the Ark of the Covenant and let the, let the Mararites worry about their carts. God draws distinctions. This planet's moving toward this, so, this total pluralistic equality that we all get the same thing and the same thing back. And let me tell you what they told me in Russia. Because I asked a lot of Russian people that lived during the Soviet Union about what communism was like and that form of socialism and equality they had. I can tell you, as a second-hand witness from everyone I spoke to, they were equal, all right? They were equally miserable. They were equally unmotivated to pursue greatness because there was no benefit in it in the structure of their government. And God does give more to him who has. To him who has, more will be given. But to him who doesn't have, even what he does have, will be taken. In fact, sometimes, according to what Jesus says, it's taken from the one who did nothing with it and given to the one who has done something with it. This is important. Now, I'm not saying parents love one kid more than another. Now, I'm not saying grandparents love some grandkids more than another. I'm just saying in the human experience, we all know that some people are a blessing on your life and, and just really seem to fully get it. And some people 
you might consider a burr in your saddle and they're an agitation, it's difficult, and you might be yoked to them from here to eternity because they live in your house, they're a part of your family, they're in your trust, in your estate, or they have, they're tenured at your job and there's no way anyone's firing them. That's the way it works. And in this distinction, outwardly, it would seem unfair, like Jacob isn't afraid to show his favoritism. He, okay, so the tunic... It can be multiple colors. It can be long. It is a coat of distinction. In the Hebrew, we know it's a coat of distinction. I don't know. It sounds silly, but just because Luke worked at Starbucks all those years, he had the, uh, the black apron, which means he knew he was a coffee connoisseur. You know, like he knew all the different coffees and which pastries you eat with the coffee. You know? And so when you walk into Starbucks and they got, everyone's got a green, you know, apron, and Luke's with the black apron. He's like, yes, from there. And like, ooh, you know, he's a coffee connoisseur. You know, it's a distinction. It's a, it's a distinction. His jacket in their household, which was, of course, an economy, because Jacob's household was an economy. It was a, it was a perpetuating economy with all their wealth. He's got the jacket. Now, here's what's funny. We're told he has it because he's the son of the woman he loved that he worked seven years as if it was nothing, Rachel. It's, of course, Rachel's gone. She's in eternity. And she died in childbirth with Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, who's a key player in this story as we go forward in the coming month. Jacob gave Joseph the coat more than likely from the context because he was the link to Rachel. He was the link. You look like your mother. Every time I see you, I see your mother, and I loved your mother. And seven years working for your uncle Laban was like nothing. I just can't let anything happen to you. You're you're my favorite because you remind me of the, of the one woman that was my one true love, Rachel. So I'm giving you this coat. These guys, they, they wipe out cities. They, I don't even know what to say about these guys. Reuben sleeping with Bill Hyde. Look, here's a coat for you. Because when you get all these adult kids, you realize there's just only so much you can encourage them to do or ask them to do. And then, you know, they're just going to make decisions. And, I mean, the ultimate last thing you can do is say, go make it on your own. You want it that way, you pay your way that way. That's pretty much where they cross that line. Oh, you got it all figured out, huh? Okay, well, good luck. Or as they say in Chile, buena suerte. <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah. And there was a distinction that Jacob gave. But here's what's important. As much as his earthly father gave him a distinction, he already had a distinction from his heavenly father. Because... Joseph is indeed a young man of faith. We know that when he's in Potiphar's house and this powerful woman, most likely an attractive woman because she's married to a captain of the guard, when she makes a move for him, he has self-control over that. He has exactly what his brothers, half-brothers, did not have, self-control. We know from the panoramic overview of Joseph's life that He's above reproach. He's just above reproach. You, there's no accusations. He's the type of Jesus, actually. There's no accusations. He's betrayed by his brothers and revealed to his brothers the second time, like Jesus in Israel. There's a lot of typologies with Joseph, with Jesus, that we'll get into as we go through his life. But as a whole, he was above reproach. When Jacob is prophesying over his children at the end of his life, he describes well Joseph and all the sons prophetically, correctly, but he just says, Joseph was a fruitful bow, just, just 
fruitful in everything he did. We find in Joseph's life, as he goes forward, he finds favor wherever he goes, and he prospers wherever he goes. And from his own mouth, he says, how be it, far be it for me to do this thing against the Lord? He had a fear of the Lord, and he had a heart for the Lord. So when we think about the coat being a distinction, separating him from the appearance of his brothers, his heart and his life and his faith and his integrity and his character separated him from the distinction of his brothers. He is nothing like his brothers. He is distinct, not because of the coat, but because of the character. And that coat on him didn't just say, I'm dad's favorite. It really said, I am different. And time and time again, for followers of Christ, we're exhorted to have that distinction. Like the bumper sticker says, not of this world. In this world, but not of this world. And it's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing sometimes what that looks like. Because we're in the world, but we're not of the world. But just know this, he had a distinction. And the greatest distinction isn't a shirt that says like some Christian statement or a church or whatever, anything like that. The greatest distinction is really how we are in the secret and the quiet place. Who we really are with our integrity and our character as a woman, as a man. That's the distinction. See, because the greatness that came to Joseph's life, through Joseph's life, and entrusted to Joseph's life, to the blessings of millions in his timeline, plus generations to come, it really begins with the character of his heart and the integrity of his faith. He was very much set apart and distinct. That code of distinction is an outward testimony of an inward distinction and consecration to the Lord. You can rip the coat off that guy. You can deceive his father with that coat. And you can even rip the next coat off of him like Potiphar's wife did. But the man under that coat is a man of character and integrity and conviction and faith. So you can rip his coats and you can rip them off him, but it doesn't change who he is. And that's why he's headed for greatness because of his character and who he really is in the secret and the quiet place of the Lord. And that is a great application for you and I tonight. Anything great, truly great, is going to be spiritually great. And anything spiritually great is going to begin with humility, brokenness, and consecration to the Lord. It's, it's, going, to, it's going to begin with that sanctifying process, that separation. And like I said, we don't need a tunic coming from our earthly father to say, you're different than the other co-workers or the other kids in the family. We need a heart before the Lord that says we belong to the Lord and character counts, and we have conviction, and you can rip my coat off once, and you can, you can rip my coat off as my brother in Israel, and I'm going to be true to who I am, and you can rip my coat off and leave me naked in Egypt, and I'm going to be true to who I am. The tunic, the distinction from the world, we're set apart. We're set apart. When that trumpet sounds at the return of the Lord, there are people going up to be at the Lord and people being left behind. It might be ambiguous and gray to people on planet Earth right now, but it is very clear and distinct. When that trumpet sounds, it only sounds once. Be very clear who is the Lord's and who is not. Character counts. Distinction, the code of distinction, is the outward manifestation of what was already clear to Jacob as well, that this kid has a higher standard, self-governed before the Lord, then I can impose on him or anyone else can impose on him. He makes the right choices because he fears God. And you're going to run my affairs at 17. 
Look at David. He was the last child in the household. Child number eight, boy number eight. What did, what did God tell Samuel? God doesn't look at the outward like man does. God looks at the heart. Yeah, so let me just say, the bigger you dream, the more important it is to be set apart for spiritual things. You can dream big in the world like lots of people do, but it just gets left behind. But to attempt great things for God and to expect great things from God, like William Carey so long ago said, the great missionary 200 years ago, there, there has to be, there has to be. So I encourage us as we think of 2020, what great things God might, what great things have we maybe missed? I'm thinking, talking to older people now. Because I, I personally believe in the secret required place, I've missed some great things with the Lord because I did not set myself apart the way God wanted me to or handle things the way he wanted to. But, you know, the game's not over yet. <laughs> so, hey, we're here. There's still, there's still, this, this one's not, this isn't over yet. We're still in the game here. And God can redeem the years of the locust ate, even the swarming locusts, which I've been quoting to my sister regularly. Because she's rebuilding everything of her life. And she's like, where have I been for 20 years? You know, that I'm just now functioning in society the way I kids. It's all right. We just can't change that. But we're going forward. It's always forward with the Lord. Consecration. And then we see the dream. It's a big dream. I mean, it's a big dream. But here's the thing about this dream. It's like, oh, I dream of being a doctor someday. Or I dream of being the president. Or I dream of you know, whatever we might dream about, being the world champion and all these things that we think big dreams might be. People are like, what's your dream? I like to ask people, what's your dream? Because Luke works for Hyundai now, our son works for Hyundai, he can get all these hookups for the family, which is not the point, but we were driving a Sonata, which is part of the story, the other night, and uh, the, the girl with us from the, the car dealership, the Hyundai, in Huntington Beach, we start talking with her, and hey, she's a... a Hispanic girl from Santa Ana, really sweet girl, really enjoyed talking with her. And hey, she graduated college and she uh, has a major in political science, which was Luke's major in political science, right? It's pretty cool. I'm like, hey, and Luke works at Hyundai and you work here and these things. And, and she was really sharp. And I said, I, I turned around and said, what's your dream? I mean, you made it. You're early 20s with a college degree and you're working here and you're the person showing us the car and you got a polyscience major. I go, what's your dream? And right away she goes, I want to improve immigration in the United States. She goes, I want to improve the immigration system so it works. I said, good dream. Good for you. Think of people like Sam Coca, your dad. I think of my great-grandfather, great-grandmother coming through Ellis Island. Good for you. Good for you. See, we need dreams. We need to build people up on their dreams. She said, I've seen injustices, and I want to make things better. I go, listen, I'm reading Jeremiah right now, and he's talking about all the injustices by the false shepherds. God honors justice and truth and, and doing the right things at the right time. Good for you. See, that's what I mean by dreaming. You, know, like, that's, you want to build that up, but the Lord has to be over it. But we should dream big dreams. Hey, if your dream is to like, run a car dealership, good for you. But when you, see, what I said is it's always in, you can never go wrong with loving and serving others. So if you put loving and serving others at the top of your dream as to the motive of your dream, you can't go wrong. When I was in Cleveland, someone broke down uh, with me because I was a pastor or whatever in the, in the street. It's a snow flurries and they're saying like, my life and this and that and how hard it is and explain all these things. And, and I just said, listen, and people are saying I should divorce and do all these things. Let me tell you something. 
This I know. You can never go wrong with loving and serving others. So whatever you're going to gauge your decisions on, you can never go wrong with loving and serving others. Let that be the compass that guides your decisions. It is always honorable, and it will never go wrong for you from here to eternity. But this dream came from the Lord. See, this div- dream has divine origin. Now, here's his 17-year-old. Like, he's, he's, he's a 17-year-old. Dad trusts him with running the company, the family business. He's got the coat. The brother's like, ugh, you know. But they already hated him. They hated him before the dream. Did you catch that? The dream just adds to the hate. They're just, there's jealousy and envy. It's just a human experience from, from the dawn of creation. Cain and Abel, right? God accepts his offer. Doesn't accept his offering. Yeah, I'm going to kill him. You know, it's like nothing new under the sun. This dream has divine origin. It came from the Lord. This dream came from the Lord. And again, as I was mentioning earlier, it connects to Abraham's dream. This dream, when this dream is fulfilled, he will be in Egypt ruling over Egypt. This dream's fulfillment isn't going to happen in the promised land, but it is going to happen. It's not just going to be a palace in Hebron and Joseph comes out like an Israelite king. Yo, King Joseph in Hebron. No, it doesn't work that way. This dream's going to come to pass, but in a completely different way than anyone could ever thought at that time whatsoever. Now, Abraham, his uh, great-grandfather, Abraham, would have had a concept because he's one that had the vision of the first place where they go to a faraway land Joseph's dream is connected to Abraham's dream because this dream is going to be fulfilled in the faraway land and it's reflective of the prosperity and the blessings that will be upon his life, Joseph, in the faraway land that he'll later say, God brought me here, though you made it for evil, but for the saving of many. He is now connecting to the previous generations of the promise and of the covenant through a dream from the Lord. That's pretty awesome. Which makes us think of Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. As we seek the Lord, as we keep the Lord first, he will give us visions. He will give us dreams. He'll give us insight. He'll give us a burden. And we'll think, wow, you know, I prayed with someone a couple of weeks ago, and they're like, and they, they were older, older than me. And, and I said, well, what's next in life? It's like, oh, I don't even want to say it. It's just so exciting, but I just, I'm just, you know, I'm like, well, listen, dream big with the Lord, and let's pray for it right now. Because God's not done until he's done. Elevate the dream. Elevate the expectation. My sister and I have this thing going on right now. Because, again, she, she's been, you know, she lived on the streets. Now she's in a halfway house. She's about to get her own place. And she, didn't, she couldn't drive public transportation for years. She's got her license restored. Everything was expunged for her on Friday. Praise the Lord. No more criminal charges against her. She goes, I can work for the government. I'm like, do you really want to? But, um, <laughs> but she said, yeah, great benefits. Okay, fair enough. You know, I, I'm with you. But we've been using this term like, it's an upgrade. Barbie, it's an upgrade. When you're walking with the Lord, you get an upgrade. Now, you might get thrown in the pit like Joseph, which will be our final point in a moment, but ultimately, it's an upgrade. It's a character upgrade. It's, a, it's an upgrade. The Lord is an upgrade. He's, he's upgrading your life. This is you, son of Adam, daughter of Eve. This is you in Christ by the Holy Spirit, <laughs> becoming like Jesus. That is an upgrade from here to eternity. But it's like, oh, when I finally get to drive, I don't, I'm not even sure how to get to work. I'll follow the bus. Either way, you're driving, and it's an upgrade. It's an upgrade. Dream dreams with the Lord that are an upgrade. 
see a better future for the kingdom and for the next generation than what people talk down and beat down on the next generation. See an upgrade. Wherever I go, I just want to tell people, expand your vision, grow your faith, loving and serving, but look upon the next generation and see an upgrade. See a better future for them because there's no reason to believe they can't have a better future because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. An upgrade. I look at my kids and I want to see bigger dreams and greater things for them than anything I ever got to accomplish in my life or, or with my wife, what she's accomplished. The kingdom is upgrades, but it's spiritual upgrades for eternal purposes, lost souls, sanctified lives, and the kingdom for all eternity. It's a big dream. Because in the culture of order, no one's bowing down to him. They all bow down to Reuben. He already said, I'm the, I'm the next guy. I've got Bill Ha and this and that. That's not how it works in God's kingdom. You can't by the flesh upgrade the, the role and the responsibilities and the calling of God. They're spiritual and they're advanced spiritually through humility and service and the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's his destiny. And God's tipping the cards on his destiny. It's a big dream. And we need to dream bigger dreams. Because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And whatever he's calling us to do, he's going to equip us to get it done. And you're like, oh, this is so out of my wheelhouse. This is so beyond me. Fine. Attempt great things. Expect great things from God. This dream is his destiny. This dream is from God. And let haters hate. And let conspirers conspire. But don't lose the vision and don't lose the dream. Hold fast those promises and the things that God is doing. And finally we see, so we have the tunic of distinction. We have the dream of divine um, origin. And it's big. Way bigger. Just, yeah. And think about Jacob too saying, will your mother and I bow down to you? Like, do we bow down? Actually, you will. (laughs) Oh, Joseph's going to save the entire state. So drop the knee now and get a preview of coming attractions. Yes, you will. You will bow the knee. He's going to save everything Everything you're worried about out there in the field. He's going to save it all. He's going to save your lives. And he's going to be used by God to give you a different perspective on life. Because remember, when Jacob gets to Pharaoh, he goes, few and evil have been my days. But then there's 17 years in Egypt. He has a change of heart and basically says, the Lord's been good to me and has been with me in all the way. And it's through his one son's faithfulness that brought about those things, that triggered those things for his growth in his life. But yeah, Jacob, you, even you will bow down to Joseph. But then there's the pit. In the pit, what can you do? Again, like I shared, those that soar most high with the Lord often descend to the deepest depths with the Lord. You go so high and you go so low. You see these high things, and then God's got to humble you and, and, and bring you down. He's got to let you go through hardships so you don't boast in yourself. Look what Paul the Apostle went through. All the things that he saw, and he goes, I, I know of a man, and he, you know, he'd always talk about himself in the second person that way, but he was so buffeted. He took so many literal beatings, and he had pain and all these things that afflicted him so he could be used of God to not be puffed up from the revelation of God and the greatness of how God was working in his life. And where there's a, a, a great destiny and a great entrusting of, of power and authority and influence, there has to be a great breaking that precedes it. 
There has to be a grinding so the confidence on that day of greatness is not in oneself, but in the God in whom that oneself serves. And we will see with Joseph that in his faithfulness in the prison, he went from the prison to the palace in one day, being faithful in a prison to being number two and having the plan to save the nation in one day. He changes garments in one day. The grinding. David, before he became king, all those visions and all those victories and just the grinding, the grinding and the breaking and the making of a man of God. There's so many books written on the life of David because it's such a testimony that if you're going to be king, you're going to get, you're going to get grinded and you're going to get prepared for those things. We, God doesn't have shallow leaders leading in greatness. He has people that have been taught great depth through suffering, through afflictions, through trials and tribulations. And that's why we're told time and time again in the Bible and specifically in the New Testament, through many afflictions, we must inherit the kingdom of God, through many tribulations and many of the afflictions of the righteous. Because God allows them to transform us, to shift our confidence and like, I can do it, to that the Lord has to do it. And one looked no farther than Moses himself, who at 40 thought he would deliver the people of Israel from the bondage that would come many generations after this, that he can do this. And then he realized he couldn't do it. And he was so beaten down after his second 40 years at the age of 80, when God appears to him at the burning bush, he's like, man, you got the wrong, you got the wrong guy. Just, it's all, no. 40 years in the wilderness as a fugitive of Egypt broke him. And then the next 40 years, when he led God's people, he was a broken man. Now, he did get frustrated with things, but he was used, and he wasn't vindictive. Like, that's all part of the process. So soar high and dream big, and don't despise the pit, because it is in the pit where what really has to come out of us comes out of us. It's in the pit where we find out who we really are. And it's in the pit where we really become who we're meant to be. And it's like Moab. God said through the Old Testament prophets of Moab, he hasn't been poured out. His dregs are still in him. You have to be poured out from vessel to vessel because you got to get it out. So what God does in our life, he pours us out from this pit to that pit to this pit to that pit to this pit to that pit because he's got to get the dregs out. Each time we're poured out from one pit to another, there's less of us and there's more of him. There's less of the flesh and there's more of the spirit. Each crushing affliction of life, whether it's the death and loss of loved ones or legal disputes that, that have bad endings or even good endings because most, most of them have bad endings even when they're a good ending. It just, whatever it might be, the job you didn't get, the, the things that worked against you because you're a, a woman, because you're white, because you're black, because you're brown, because you speak English second language or because you speak English first language, all the things that we can make excuses about Instead of just saying, Lord, here I am, and you're over my universe, and you're pouring me out from vessel to vessel, and that's all that matters is that nothing can come unless it comes from the Lord, John the Baptist said, and we receive this, and we embrace this, and we're going to grow through this, and we're going to get better for it because there's greatness right around the corner. And the greatness isn't always bigger and better. The greatness is you and me more like Jesus, loving, serving forgiving, and building real equity. Estate equity gets distributed right away and usually gets squandered in a short period of time. Lotteries are won and the money's lost and mishandled. People are broke again in a year. Real equity 
is purity, suffering, and forgiveness. From vessel to vessel. That's what God's doing with Joseph. He's just preparing him for great things around the corner. And you know what? Your afflictions and trials and tribulations, don't despise them because God's preparing you for greater things around the corner. So take it like a woman of God. Take it like a man of God and say, here I am, Lord, your servant. Let's just keep going forward. Make me more like Jesus. Amen.